Let me encourage you now to turn uh, in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 14. We will be reading from there in just a few moments, Mark 14. While we're turning there, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, from your word today, we just pray that you would speak to us, that you would show your great mercy to us, that you would show us your great love for us in Christ, your great willingness uh, to forgive sins, and your great willingness to use us in spite of all our frailties. We pray that you would teach us these things, remind us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last uh, few weeks, we have given a handful of these sermon times to considering some of the Bible's lesser-known characters, as you know. Uh, We've been giving our time to learning from some of the bit actors, if you will, in God's great drama of redemption. And this morning, we're coming to consider another one of those minor characters uh, whose life really had major significance. But this time, our protagonist actually has a name that you probably recognize. He's a minor character whose name is quite famous. Uh, Indeed, one of the four Gospels is named after him because he wrote it. And I'm speaking, of course, about the man who was sometimes called John, um, but whom we know better probably by what was perhaps his middle name, namely Mark. Uh, Now, many of us, if someone asks us to tell them about Mark, could say, oh, yes, I know Mark. He's one of the uh, authors of one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, But did you know that the New Testament actually mentions this character Mark eight other times besides in the title of his Gospel? He's, He's not a major character. He's never given more than a line or two of print in any given place in the Scriptures. But if we piece together all of the various passages that bear his name, we discover that there was actually a great deal more to this man, Mark, than simply having his name affixed to one of the books of the Bible. And so this morning, I want to try to introduce you to him. And I want to encourage you uh, to learn from the ups and the downs in his life. And there were uh, several of those as he followed Jesus. And so let me just start by giving a timeline of Mark's life, and then we're going to move on and draw some lessons from it. Our first encounter with John, who is also called Mark, probably comes here in the 14th chapter of the gospel that bears his name. Specifically, if you'll put your fingers on verses 51 and 52, I'll read them to you. And just know that in in this chapter, Jesus is being carted away to be tried before Pilate, and to be crucified on the following morning. And just as he is taken away, we read in verse 51 that a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. That's an interesting little tidbit that's dropped in there, isn't it? And the general consensus among those who study these things carefully at this is that this fleeing, naked young man was none other than the author of this gospel. For instance, Matthew, Luke, and John don't record this event at all. So why would Mark, whose gospel is the briefest of all the gospels, choose to drop this in unless it carried some personal significance for him? And also, sometimes Bible writers are known for not including their own names in the Gospels, you'll find that about the Gospel of John. The author, John, doesn't call himself by his own name. He, 
He leaves himself anonymous in that book. And so probably what we have here in Mark 14, 51 to 52, is Mark himself making his first appearance on the biblical stage. He was probably a teenager or in his early 20s at this point. He calls himself a young man, and he was evidently already a follower of Jesus at this point. Enough of a follower that he was there in the darkest hours when Jesus was praying in the garden and so on. But, like Jesus' other followers in the darkest of hours, Mark ran away to safety. Now, these things took place around 30 A.D., and we don't hear anything more about Mark until sometime in the mid-40s A.D. over in Acts chapter 12, where he appears twice. And so I'd encourage you now to follow me over into that chapter, Acts 12, and we'll see Mark there again. Acts 12 is that marvelous chapter in which Peter who was imprisoned for preaching Jesus, miraculously escaped prison with the help of an angel. You may remember that it was the middle of the night and an angel came into the cell and woke Peter up, knocked the chains off of his arms, opened the doors of the prison, and he walked out free without anybody knowing that he was gone. And he went immediately to a house there in the city where many of his fellow believers were still awake holding a prayer meeting. And one of the most memorable things Uh, and sort of comical things about that night was that when Peter knocked on the door of that house, the servant girl who came to the door was so excited to go and tell tell others that Peter was free that she forgot to open the door and let him in. We remember that, but one of the things we probably don't remember about that night is that the house where the prayer meeting took place actually belonged, verse 12, to a woman called Mary, who was the mother of John, who was also called Mark. And so here, what we have here is a hint that Mark and his family, like the other disciples who fled away when Jesus was betrayed so many years before, have been restored to usefulness and to fellowship with the Lord and his people. The apostles were using Mark's family home as a meeting place. And so Mark seems to have come a long way, so much so that we read down in verse 25 that he eventually became one of the apostle Paul's assistants. Now Paul didn't live in Jerusalem at this time. He lived in Antioch, some miles away, but he was visiting Jerusalem during that time when Peter was in prison and when he made his miraculous escape. And when he and his partner Barnabas went back to Antioch to resume their ministry in the church there, they took Mark with them. That's what we read in verse 25. And he's now probably, Mark is, somewhere in his middle 30s. And it wasn't that long until that church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas and Mark were members. It wasn't long until that church, a thriving church, a lively congregation, made one of the best decisions that any church anywhere has ever made. That is that they said, Paul, we think you should be a missionary. Wasn't that a good idea? I think so. This is about 47 AD. They sent Paul and Barnabas away as missionaries there at the beginning of Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. And they carried the gospel all around the Mediterranean basin and we learn that Paul went on journey after journey after this and we learn in the last few verses now of Acts 15 turn there with me we learn in Acts 15 that when Paul and Barnabas went on that first journey they took Mark with them Acts 15 36 through 41 you'll find that that was the case but something embarrassing and painful happened on that journey That's really what Acts 15 is telling us. Somewhere along the line, for reasons that we're not told, Mark quit the team, Acts 15, 38. 
and it became a very awkward situation for everybody involved. So awkward, in fact, that when it was time in about AD 49 for Paul and Barnabas to set off on another journey, we read in verse 39 there was a sharp disagreement between them. Barnabas thought that they should give Mark another chance and add him to their missionary team again, and Paul said, no way, we're not doing it. And so the two, great, two of the greatest missionaries of this early church period parted ways. Barnabas took Mark and went southwest, and Paul took another partner, Silas, and went northwest. It's a sad piece of church history here, Acts 15, 36 through 41, and Mark was right at the center of it. Now, oftentimes and tragically, when such a split occurs between brothers and sisters in Christ, there's never any restoration. People go their separate ways, and they never come back together again. And we might assume that that would have happened with Paul and Barnabas and Mark, especially given how sharp the disagreement was. But if we read the New Testament carefully from here on out, we will discover that Mark's name pops up several more times, often in connection with Paul. So we we may finish the book of Acts and go, well, Mark just disappeared he was never to be heard from again. But if you, if you kind of pick through the New Testament with a fine-tooth comb, you'll find that that wasn't the case. In fact, in the early 60s A.D., now a dozen or so years after that painful dispute um, between Paul and Barnabas and Mark, Paul found himself in prison in the city of Rome for preaching the gospel. And during his imprisonment in the early 60s, he wrote letters to various churches with whom his heart and his prayers were so tangled up And in two of those letters, Colossians and Philemon, he mentions that John, who is also called Mark, now a middle-aged man, was there with him in Rome. You can see that in Colossians 4, 10, and 11, and in Philemon 24. Now, we're not sure whether Mark had actually been imprisoned with Paul or whether he was simply living in Rome while Paul was in prison there and was paying Paul visits and encouraging his spirits during his stay in the jail. But one way or the other, their relationship was restored. We're not told how or when, but it's very clear that the two men had one heart once more. So much so that about five years beyond that, in the middle 60s now, when Paul was in prison again and realizing that he probably would not make it out alive this time around, he asked Timothy to send Mark to him in prison, 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul is going to die, and he says, you know who I need? I need Mark for 2 Timothy 4.11, for he is useful to me for service. And then add to the fact that Mark was also, according to 1 Peter 5.13, a co-worker of Peter's during the mid-60s, and the fact that in between all of his traveling and missionary work and so on, he wrote the second gospel. What we have in this character study of this man called John Mark is a beautiful picture of a man who had once, really twice, blown it terribly, but who had become quite useful to the Lord and to his apostles over the long haul of his life. It's an amazing story, an encouraging story. And so now as we consider this John, who is also called Mark, from his late teens or early 20s all the way into his mid-50s, I want to draw four lessons from his life and give them to you for your consideration and for your encouragement. The, ver- the first is, is very simply the strategic nature of Christian family. The strategic nature of Christian 
family. John Mark had two very strong and very interesting family connections that we should see. First, we already noticed that his mother was quite an important lady in the early church in Jerusalem. When the apostles and the others needed a safe place in which they could gather during a time of political upheaval and persecution toward the church, they gathered in her home. So she must not have only had a large home for all the people to come and gather, but she must have been a courageous woman if she was willing to invite all the Christians into her home when their key leader was in prison for preaching Christ. Can you imagine that? Imagine if I was in prison right now for doing what I'm doing this moment. All of you would be suspect as well, wouldn't you? And so it would take a lot of courage to say, why don't everybody from the church come to my house tonight and we'll pray? It's a courageous lady. And we're not told whether Mark came to Christ because his mother was a leading woman in the early church or whether his mother became a leading woman in the early church because of her son's influence or whether they came to faith and prominence somewhat independent of one another. But any way we slice it, the obvious thing is that there was a family of significant Christian influence here and that there was a synergy between mother and son. There was surely something about the fact that these two zealous hard-working disciples lived under the same roof. Together, they were surely more fruitful than they would have been apart. Family was important in Mark's life, and that's true in all families that fear the Lord, isn't it? Sometimes the children rub Christ off onto their parents. More often, it's the other way around, but either way, it is amazing to see how God often uses family both to bring people to Christ on the front end and then to help them be useful and fruitful for Christ as they go along. Indeed, I would almost dare to say that for most of us in this room, not all of us, but for many of us, a large reason why we came to Christ and why we are where we are today is because of the influence of some person somewhere in our family. And Mark was not simply blessed having a Christian mother, but he also, we're told, had a very prominent Christian cousin. Paul tells us that in Colossians 4. 10. Remember, in Colossians 4, he's in prison, and he writes to the church at Colossae, and he says, hey, Mark is here with me, and he sends his greetings as well. But he mentions, almost offhandedly, the fact that Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Remember Barnabas, Paul's great missionary partner? Well, Mark was his cousin. Mark and Barnabas were family. And that helps, I think, to bring a great deal of the rest of Mark's story into focus. Why did Paul and Barnabas pick Mark as the one to take back to Antioch in the first place in Acts 12, 25? And why did they choose him as a part of their mission team, their very first mission team, one year or two years later? Surely they saw some potential, some gift, some usefulness in him, yes. But Mark probably also had a head start in being a part of the evangelistic team because of his blood connection with Barnabas, one of the leaders of the team. And also, surely the fact that Barnabas and Mark were cousins also gives us some insight as to why Barnabas was so willing in Acts 15 to give Mark another chance, even after he deserted him on the first mission trip. They were cousins. And so Barnabas knew Mark evidently better than Paul did. He knew Mark's family. He knew how he grew up. He knew how he was raised. He knew his mother. And so Barnabas probably had a more natural patience with him, a more sensitive heart to Mark's frailty and his weakness because they were cousins. He probably had a keener eye to the potential as well that Mark possessed, failures and all. 
what if Barnabas hadn't seen those things? What if Barnabas and Mark hadn't been cousins? And what if Barnabas, therefore, hadn't been quite so willing to stand up for him and to re-invite him to the missionary circle? What would have become of Mark? Would he have turned out to be as useful as he was? Would he have ever written the gospel that bears his name? Only God knows the answers to those questions, of course. Only God knows what may have become of Mark without the help of his cousin. But it may well not have been the same. So what's my point? To say that only people from Christian families are fruitful in the Lord's service? Far from that. I could point out people in this room who obviously disprove that fact. My point is not to discount people who come from widely different backgrounds than Mark did, but simply to say that God did use Mark's family mightily in his life. Surely he had his own gifts and maturity and spiritual growth that made him useful in the Lord's work, but some of those things came to him and were made more obvious to people around him, surely because he was a part of a family that loved the Lord and had connections with his people and were servants of the church themselves. And the same thing ought to be true of our families, oughtn't it? I'm not suggesting you go back and try to figure out how much more fruitful you would be if you had a family like Mark had. That's not the point. The point is not that you lament that you didn't have this kind of family. The point is that you make sure that your children and your grandchildren and your cousins and your nieces and your nephews and so on do have this kind of family. The point is that none of us ever know if there may be a mark growing up in our family, just right underneath our noses. How useful was he? How thankful are we for the gospel that he wrote? And so we need to make sure that we give our little marks and our little marshes all the help and the godly example and the encouragement that young Mark must have had from the members of his family. We need to be godly parents and cousins and grandparents and uncles and aunts and brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law and so on. No, our families don't and cannot make us Christians. They cannot necessarily even make us fruitful once we become Christians, but they surely can be a strategic piece of God's plan to encourage and help us along the way. And we have Mark's life story this morning, along with the entire gospel that bears his name, as living proof of the strategic nature of a Christian family. So, the ups and downs of the life of John, Mark, show us the strategic nature of Christian family. That's the first thing. But then also we see in Mark the frailty of Christian disciples. The frailty of Christian disciples. If poor Mark hadn't written one of the four Gospels, if we didn't know his name so well for that reason, he would probably primarily be remembered as a quitter. That's what the biblical writers, including Mark himself, give the most print run to in his life, isn't it? Mark actually gives to us two of the Bible's most memorable examples of what it looks like for somebody to run away from the Lord's work. His stories are not quite as memorable as Jonah being swallowed by a whale, but it's hard to forget a guy who ran away one time naked, and it's hard to forget a guy who ran another time, ran away another time, in such a key moment that it precipitated one of the saddest moments in the history of the early church. Because remember, his deserting Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey in Acts 15 is what brought about that split between these two greatest of New Testament early church missionaries. Mark's running away twice is infamous 
It's memorable for all the wrong reasons. It's given far more ink in the pages of the New Testament than was his restoration. In fact, you have to search hard, thumbing through the back ends of several of Paul's epistles to discover that Mark was restored at all. And so, were it not for the gospel he wrote, we might scarcely know the name of Mark, and if we did, we would know him nothing, as nothing other than a runaway disciple. And while we've been saying that he was far more than that, his bailing out on the Lord and on his work observes uh, or bears some observation on our part. Namely, we ought to think hard about the way Mark ran away, not so that we can beat him or others over the head for sometimes failing to be what we ought to be in the Lord's service, but just so that we might be a little more realistic about what Christian disciples are really made of. In other words, if there's anything that Mark's failures teach us, it's that we're all much more fragile and weak and prone to give up and throw in the towel than we would probably like to believe. Here was a man of obvious gifts. Remember, he wrote the Gospel of Mark. Here was a man whose family had always been there to encourage him and to help him. And here was a man who, when he ran away that second time in Acts 15, had been a Christian for roughly 20 years. So, surely Mark is not going to give up. Surely Mark is not going to quit the mission team. But he did. He threw in the towel, not necessarily on being a Christian, but on the work that God had called him to do. And I simply say, Mark is a reminder to us that we are all so frail, even if we have all the advantages, even if we've been a Christian for decades. How many of us have been tempted, maybe even in just the last few weeks, to just give up? To just stop hoping in what we were hoping. To just stop serving the Lord. To just give in to some sinful pattern. I'm tempted that way all the time to just say, It's not working. I just give up. And the reason is because I'm weak like Mark and changeable and frail, and so are you. So these things, of course, are not an excuse if we should desert the Lord. That's not my point. My point is simply that we shouldn't be surprised or thrown off if from time to time we find ourselves or our brothers and sisters in Christ really struggling to keep walking with the Lord. It's not necessarily a sign that we're not real Christians. It's not necessarily a sign that we will never be fruitful again. It's simply that we, like Mark, are far more fragile than we realize when everything's going well. And knowing that about ourselves, we probably ought to do a better job of giving each other the benefit of the doubt and coming alongside one another like Barnabas did, seeking to restore one another to usefulness in the Lord's work. I'm learning these things more and more about myself, just how personally, spiritually, emotionally brittle I am, how easy I break and falter in sin, and I I hope that I'm also learning better to see and understand and bear with the frailty of other people as well. I hope that you'll pray that I will do a better job of that. Forgive me where I'm more like Paul and less like Barnabas. But the bottom line in all that I'm trying to say is that we need God. We're weak. If becoming a Christian meant we never sinned again or never struggled again or were never tempted up to go back and give up again, then we wouldn't need God, would we? But we so emphatically do need him. We need him whether we're as gifted as Mark was or not or whether we come from the best possible background or not. We're weak, breakable, frail human beings who need God as we sometimes sing every hour. We need the gospel every hour, don't we? That's what Mark's struggle teaches us. 
Even if we've been Christians for 20 years, we need the gospel every hour. We need the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins every hour. We need the strength to keep going on every hour. And we need every hour to remember the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. That's how frail we are. Every single hour we are dependent. Every single minute we are dependent on the Lord. And in some of our darkest hours, we need someone like Barnabas to come along and give us a second chance. And give us the encouragement to try again. So that's the second lesson that we garner from this man, John, who was also called Mark. The frailty of Christian disciples. All of them. Now thirdly, it seems to me that Mark's story teaches us the loveliness of Christian mercy. So the strategic nature of Christian family, the frailty of Christian disciples, now the loveliness of Christian mercy. I don't want to spend too much time on this point because we've touched on it at length with some of these previous minor characters, but we cannot talk about Mark without talking about how Mark was there for the Apostle Paul during his imprisonment, Colossians 4, 10, and 11, and how he proved to be an encouragement to him in the darkest hour. That's especially noteworthy, as we'll see under our final heading, given the fractured nature of their relationship 15 or 20 years before. But even if Mark and Paul had never had a falling out, it would still be worth mentioning that when Paul was in prison, in his hour of greatest need, Mark was one of the handful, the small handful of men who was there to help him. And Mark is simply a reminder that while we all sometimes follow Mark in his frailty, whether we want to or not, we ought also to follow him in his mercy towards hurting brothers and sisters. Now, We don't all know, none of us know, actually what he did for Paul exactly while he was in prison. We don't know if he read to him. We don't know if he tried to get him released. We don't know if he brought him food, if he brought him chocolate or whatever it may be. But he was there, right? That's the point. He was there in the dark hour, and Paul says he, quote, proved to be an encouragement to me. And that's enough to get us started, isn't it? Because we all know brothers and sisters who are struggling. Maybe they're not confined to a prison cell, but to a hospital bed or to a nursing home or to their apartments. And all of us know people who aren't confined, but who are dealing with great family discouragements or financial strains or physical difficulties. And what a privilege it is to have the opportunity like Mark to be there and to be of encouragement to them. In addition, you'll remember that Mark was not just there with Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome and then later set free, but that as Paul neared the end of his life and he was imprisoned again and knew that he was going to die, he wanted Mark to be there with him again, 2 Timothy 4.11. He specifically asked for Mark to come be at his side in his dying days. Timothy, I want you to come, and I want you to bring Mark with you. And I simply ask you, as I've done before, to whom you might be able to show that kind of mercy. Who might you help to die well? For whom might you be there in the last days and weeks and hour as the one who whispers the Bible into her ears or sings hymns beside his bed? Whose hand will you be able to hold right up until the point where Jesus takes that hand for himself and leads them across that final river? It's a lovely thing to be able to show Christian mercy to people in their dark hours and especially to people in their dying hours. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, it's an especially lovely thing to show mercy to persecuted believers as well. 
Remember that that's what Paul was as Mark came to him in prison. Paul wasn't in prison, thank God, because he embezzled money from people through his television ministry. No, Paul was in prison simply for preaching Christ and for trusting Christ and for believing in the resurrection from the dead. And just as it is a special privilege for people like Paul to suffer for Jesus' sake, so it's also a special privilege for people like Mark to show mercy to those who are so suffering. And so I just urge you again this morning, as I did a couple of weeks ago, to cultivate a heart for the persecuted church. This morning there are postcard-sized cards on the foyer table that would help you get started, that just give you a little reminder of the persecuted church in some country in the world. So I hope you'll take one. I hope you'll cultivate a heart for the persecuted church and that God will surely then give you the means and the opportunity to be there for those people in some way or another in their darkest hours with the kind of mercy for which Mark should be better remembered. So that's lesson three, the loveliness of Christian mercy and the mercy that Mark showed. Now finally, and really most significantly, we ought to learn from the ups and downs in the life of John Mark the surprise of Christian restoration. This is the main thing, the surprise of Christian restoration. This is really the marrow of Mark's story, isn't it? His restoration, his coming back, his being brought back. That's the thing that makes him worth our consideration, isn't it? Indeed, this is the only reason why we would ever want to study Mark, because he came back, because God worked, because Barnabas was there for him. That's what makes Mark worth our interest. That's the only reason why we notice him. Because even though he messed up royally twice, he came back to the Lord both times and was welcomed back both times and was restored. Now, Mark really did blow it, didn't he? We don't know that he walked away from the faith altogether. It doesn't seem that he did, but we know that he walked away from the ministry, and he embarrassed himself tremendously in the process, and we surely feel sorry for him. We empathize with him. We know how it feels to be in his shoes, but none of those things minimize the fact that he really stunk it up on two different occasions. Now, I know that when Mark fled at the arrest of the Lord Jesus, he was by no means the only one who fled. In fact, he tells us himself in Mark 14, 50, that they all left him and fled. But I think Mark would tell us that just because everyone else fell off the wagon didn't make it it okay for me to do so. In fact, that may be why he chose to record the incident about him running away naked in the first place. Not because it was an interesting little tidbit that we would all remember because it's so odd, but he probably recorded his running away so that he might say to his readers, they all left him and fled, and I did too. I ran away just like the rest of them. And the same thing can be said about Mark's desertion of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. Luke was writing the book of Acts at a distance of many years from those events. As a friend of Mark's, as someone who had served Paul alongside Mark and who knew how well things had turned out for Mark in the end. And so Luke, when he wrote his story, could have just smoothed this whole incident over, couldn't he? He could have chosen not to include Mark's fall at all. He could have just told us, hey, Barnabas and Paul, they went their separate ways in Acts 15. And he didn't have to tell us that Mark was the reason why. But Luke comes right out and tells us what Mark did, and in the starkest of terms, calling him a deserter. And so both Mark and Luke seem to be trying to say to us what Mark did was really serious. In fact, so serious 
that in Acts 15.40, the church in Antioch seems to have sided with Paul on this issue when he chose not to take Mark with him. We could debate about whether that was right or wrong, but the point is that Mark's departure was a hard blow to Paul and to Barnabas and to the church to which they all belonged, and it surely made the missionary journey that much more difficult with two less hands and feet to share in the work. Surely it broke Barnabas's heart to see his cousin getting on the boat in Pamphylia with a one-way ticket and going home. So what am I saying? Simply that Mark's failures were really serious and really hurtful and caused a great deal of pain, and he had no excuses for them. But I'm saying all of that, not so that we can bang on Mark this morning, but so that the depth of his failures will make us realize that his restoration was all the more amazing and indeed all the more surprising. Now, if I told you this morning how Mark ran away the first time and then how he deserted Paul and Barnabas, and if you had no idea that there was such a thing as the gospel of Mark and that he was the author of it, and if you had no clue of how well Paul speaks of Mark at the end of the New Testament, do you know what many of you would probably have thought? You'd probably have written Mark off in your mind. That's what I would have done anyway. I wouldn't read the rest of the New Testament going, let me find out what happened to Mark. What happened to Mark? No, I would probably have just said to myself, well, that's the way it goes. Some people fade in and out of the church. Others keep going. And I guess that's the last we'll hear of Mark. But let's go on and see what happened with Paul and Barnabas and the others. It's often that easy to forget people who fall away, isn't it? Or if we don't forget them, just to assume that they probably won't be back. In fact, if he was anything like me, I wouldn't be surprised if even Barnabas himself thought that way as he watched Mark get on that ship headed for home. I'm sure he grieved and wished he would someday see Mark turn it around, but I suspect that if he was like me, he didn't have a great vision for how Mark would probably someday be out on the mission field again. And maybe he'll even write a biography of the Lord Jesus. Barnabas probably, if he was like me, assumed that Mark's career in ministry was over. And so it should in some ways come as a surprise, a pleasant surprise, when we find out that Mark came back, that he returned to gospel ministry, that the sore spot between he and Paul was healed. It's a surprise because in the secular world, such things rarely happen. Isn't that so? In the secular world, burned bridges are often never truly repaired, even if people make a show of doing so. And sadly, it's often true in the world of the church as well. But it oughtn't be. In the world of the church and of the gospel, it should really be a normal thing for us to see people who have gone off the deep end, people who have let others down, people who have blown their testimony royally, to see them actually being restored to fellowship and usefulness, being forgiven, being brought back. And when that happens, we're often surprised. But we shouldn't be, given the size of our God and the nature of the gospel, should we? In fact, isn't this really the story of the whole Bible? Isn't the whole Bible just a long-running account of people who really blew it, but who were brought back to God? restored to faith and faithfulness that's the whole message of the gospel isn't it that god sent his son into the world not to save the righteous but sinners that god sent his son as the great physician not for spiritually healthy people but for sick people 
that Jesus is willing to leave the 99 sheep on the hillside and go out in search of the one that has run away. That's the gospel. That's the Bible. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see that paradigm repeated in the story of Mark and in the lives of Marks all around us today. And it shouldn't surprise us to see the paradigm repeated in our own lives. On the one hand, it shouldn't surprise us to find that we sometimes do things foolish and sinful and find ourselves stumbling badly and weak and frail in our faith. But it surely shouldn't surprise us then to feel the Lord's kind, nail-printed hands picking us up and dusting us off and raising our chins once more and wiping away the tears from our eyes. And maybe that's just what some of us need to hear this morning. You may feel like you need to have Jesus dusting you off and lifting you up this morning. You're here in God's house, perhaps, but some of you may feel inside that you're a million miles away from God. You sense a drift, or maybe you could even pinpoint a time in recent weeks or months when, like Mark, you just gave up. Not on Christianity altogether, necessarily, but maybe you gave up believing in some promise of the Lord's, or you gave up hoping for some help from his hand, or you gave up praying for some need, or you gave up on the Bible, or you gave up doing what God used to have you do. You gave up fighting that besetting sin, whatever it is. I'm not here to minimize the importance of that drifting or that giving up. I'm just here to remind you that if that's you, you're no different than Mark. Mark was a gospel minister. Mark was a missionary with the Apostle Paul. And Mark got up one day and just walked out, leaving his friends in a lurch in the process. And perhaps even to himself, it seemed like his days of usefulness were at an end. Perhaps he thought he'd never really be happy in the Lord again, given how he'd blown it. But look at him by the time we reach the end of the New Testament. He's back out on the mission field thanks to the patience and the mercy of his cousin Barnabas. He's written the gospel to be read by millions for 2,000 years ever since. And he's been restored to friendship with Paul and even given the privilege of helping him die well. So do you see? In Acts 15, Mark is one of the most tragic characters on the pages of the New Testament. But by the end of the New Testament's chronicles, he is one of the greatest redemption stories in the Bible. And the same sort of turnaround can happen in you or in me or in that loved one about whom you're so concerned. No matter how bad you've blown it or no matter how bad you someday may blow it, there's restoration in the gospel. That's why Jesus came and died, so that we might be surprised by how willing he is to take us back even when we've gone over the cliff spiritually. Now, I don't know how God got Mark's life back on the rails after these two significant stumbles. The Bible doesn't say anything about how he came back to the Lord. It just makes it clear that he did. And so I can't give you a formula this morning for five things you need to do to get things right if you feel like you've fallen off the wagon spiritually or that you're dangerously close to doing so. All I can say for sure is that the Lord Jesus did it for Mark. Somehow, some way, the Lord Jesus, as he so often did in his earthly ministry, opened his arms wide, and John, who was also called Mark, ran to him and was restored. And I just encourage you this morning, however much of a failure you may feel yourself to have been, to do the same.